Welcome to the Saturate Podcast. My name is Duke Rivard. Today we have a special guest named Nathan Wagnon. He's the equipping pastor at Watermark Community Church in Dallas, Texas. He also happens to be one of my best friends. I met Nathan Wagnon about 20 years ago when he was breaking the dress code at Dallas Seminary. We'll talk about that. And Nathan has just wrapped up a D-Men at Talbot Seminary on God image and God concept, which is to say we all have sort of the right answer view of how we're supposed to talk about God and what our creed might say about how we view God. But then we actually have a functional image of God, which may be closer to our earthly father or other um, distorted images based on our experiences in life or even trauma. And so we're going to talk through how we discern what our functional image of God actually is. Uh, I think this is a really important topic. Obviously, our whole life is lived in worship and discipleship. And so our image of God has implications for every other area of our life. And so Nathan's going to give us just a, a wealth of information. He's a deep dive learner. He read, oh, probably over 150 books on the topic. He's going to distill all that down so you don't have to read that many books. And I just think this is going to be significant uh, for your personal walk and for your ministry as you really start to discern um, your image of God and maybe the image of God that those that you're working with have, how those have been formed, and honestly, how we can reform those to be more accurate, uh, more close to the God who is, who is most fully seen in the person of Jesus. Uh, without any further ado, let's jump into this episode where we talk about distorted images of God in our discipleship. Uh, Nathan, the first time I ever saw you, you were breaking the dress code at Dallas Seminary. <laughs> well, Duke, some some uh, some codes need to be broken, <laughs> and right. that was a, that was a stupid one that needed to be broken. So I'm okay love, with that. I love it. I remember the dean walking over to you and like chatting you up. And <laughs> I, I totally I, did. I, I could only imagine what that conversation was. But well, you I, know, I went to his office. It was Bob Garippa, and uh, he's a nice guy. But he was like, come see me after class. And I was like, all right, whatever. So I go see him. And uh, I was like, we started talking about it. And I was like, you know, you realize that we follow a guy who walked around in a tunic <laughs> barefoot half the time. <laughs> I just wonder if Jesus would be required to follow this dress code. And he kind of smirked at me and said, hey, you know, dress it up a little bit more. And I was like, all right, whatever. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I instantly was like, hey, I want to get to know that guy. And <laughs> God uh, gave us the opportunity to do that. So yeah. for those of you listening, um, Nathan and I have been great friends for, gosh, probably almost 20 years now. Got to do a lot of life together, a lot of ministry together. And I'm just really excited to have him on the podcast. So while we did, you know, a THM together at Dallas Seminary, he's after that, I'll give you just some bio on Nathan. He uh, he decided he wanted to grow as a leader, and so he went and enlisted as a platoon leader in the U.S. Army and did two tours in Afghanistan. Uh, as a that's I mean it's a it's an interesting way to grow as a leader. A little there's probably less dangerous ways to to you know to grow, but yeah, um, yeah. yeah that was. Yeah, good experience, though. I mean, you know, it, it definitely was kind of an unconventional route. I did not think I was going to take that route, but the Lord made that super clear that that's what was next for me and and uh, wouldn't trade those years. I mean, it was a great experience. It was the early years of my marriage and and uh, just to be a part of a community like the military and to 
you know, be a part of something that was going on, you know, more globally was a privilege. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, That was awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks for serving. And from there uh, you got, yeah, of course you got married to Margaret. You now have two sons, Nile, Nate and Miles and a daughter, Jules. And number four on the way, right? Yeah, we have number four on the way. In fact, we're doing a gender reveal on Saturday, so we'll find out uh, find out whether it's a little boy or girl. But we got some uh, got some tests back this week that were really encouraging. Everything's right down the middle, so we're 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 blessed, man. Yeah, so that's anyways, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, tell us what your ministry currently looks like at Watermark. What, what are your what's your role? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, what part? I guess. <laughs> You know, it's a good question to ask. I do. So my title, which doesn't mean a whole lot around here, but it helps sometimes for people to understand what I do. Um, My title is the director of equipping and apologetics, which means I run our apologetics ministry called the Great Questions Ministry. That's for skeptics, atheists, agnostics, people exploring the faith. So I run that. And then uh, I also do kind of our standard kind of discipleship proper, or sometimes people call it like, you know, spiritual disciplines, basic disciplines called Equip Disciple. And then I teach all of our equipping courses, which are kind of introduction 101 stuff um, to a bunch of different uh, topics in Christianity from the Bible to the life of Christ, to the life of Paul, to discipleship, to theology, to apologetics, all that stuff. Um, And then I do a podcast. So if you're listening to this and you want to hear us talk about things that matter in regard to discipleship, theology, and apologetics, then come check us out. On yeah, the what's the name pod- of the podcast? It's just The Equipping Podcast. We went, we sat through these long, like, you know, marketing meetings with our communications team about having this cool, trendy name. And all the cool, trendy names were taken. And so finally, I was getting a little bit antsy and frustrated. And I was like, why don't we just call it what it is? It's an equipping podcast. So... Love it. There you go. Yeah, that's great. You guys want to check that out. Nathan has some really big hitters on, and there's some great, great topics that they get into. So, yeah, uh, today's episode, though, I really want to zero in, Nathan, on your D-Men thesis at Biola. So uh, Nathan just finished a D-Men. He did it on uh, – well, I'm going to let you describe it. But what I am what I want this podcast, what I really want us to focus on is the reality that we can have distorted images of God even as we're following God, even as we're disciples of Jesus. And we know the right answer is that if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. You know, we, we know that, but our, our image of God is not perfectly mapped to Jesus. There's, there's gaps and problems and holes. And, and so, Nathan, maybe just to get started, uh, maybe tell us about the scope of your thesis, how you even mm. discovered that topic, yeah. and then maybe how you went about you know, the study around this important topic. Yeah. As I was getting out of the military after my second deployment, Margaret got pregnant with Nate and I was like, Hey, what's next for us? And, uh, felt actually through a lot of conversations with you, I felt, uh, you know, the Lord kind of pushing me more towards the church. And, and so we were looking at that and part of that was like, well, Hey, I've, I've always wanted to just continue to study if, if programs are out there that fit what I'm interested in. And, uh, this one definitely did. Um, it's a, it's Biola's or Talbot school of theology's, uh, doctorate of ministry in discipleship. And that's kind of my heart. Uh, I wrote my master's thesis on the great commission. And, and so I went, I wanted to go out there and learn from those guys. So I started, there's a longer story to that, but I started that and, uh, was pretty bent on doing 
what most people think of when you think of discipleship. A lot of like, whether it's taking people through a curriculum or making sure that people were trained a certain way or something like that. And I was going to do a project around that until my second uh, residency out there, year two of the program, uh, a a professor from their spiritual formation department, uh, Betsy Barber is her name, came in and took us through this exercise. Um, and the exercise didn't last, but like 20 minutes and I was a daggum wreck, man. (laughs) Um, I, I literally walked outside and was like, what just happened? Oh my gosh. I'm way more jacked up than I thought. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was basically what it did was the exercise is designed to bring a lot of your subconscious implicit beliefs about how not necessarily what you explicitly believe about God, but how you more emotionally relate to him and how those emotional images are are shaped and formed. And I just began to realize that, oh, dang, man, I really, from an emotional experiential standpoint, I'm interacting with God like he's uh, a coach or he's a uh, maybe like a hard professor or um you know uh there was there were there were some significant negative uh emotional attachments there and it just like filleted me open man i was i was like well dang all right well now i'm going to work on this <laughs> because it's my story you know and so that sent that sent me on a long journey into uh, psychoanalysis, which is a field I'd never gotten in, I really didn't have any idea about neurobiology, how the brain works, how the how information is is uh, processed by the brain, uh, attachment theory, um, all of that stuff. And then uh, I developed an assessment out of that that uh, is a little more robust than the one I went through with Betsy. Um, I designed it in a multifaceted way to take, I took 20 people in a focus group at Watermark through this assessment and it's designed to raise their emotional image of God to the, to the level of awareness and allow them to look at it, to examine it, and then to expose the parts of it that are false and reinforce the parts of it that are true. And, uh, and man, I, I told somebody the other day, they were asking me about it. And I was like, man, I could never have dreamed that the the results that I've gotten from that thing have would have been as um, what's the right word robust <laughs> or like significant as they are. I mean, it's it the the results of it were like truly, at least in my life, were groundbreaking. I was like, oh, lots of eureka moments, not just for me, um, for a lot of people. And so I'm excited to share that. Working on a manuscript right now to be uh, published, hopefully, maybe by the end of the year, but hopefully next year, and um, mm. and ex- just expand the conversation out for everybody. So yeah, no, yeah, it's man. really really great. So I've read through a lot of your your thesis. Uh, I know Nathan. If it, yeah, I'll just tell the audience, Nathan approaches this like more like a PhD. So he read really really deep and wide around subject matter. And, uh, I think it's going to be a great book and a great resource. I brother, I've said this to you, but I almost wonder if this doesn't become a part of your vocation and a long, long long-term project that God has you on to reform and to help people. 
identify. And I want to get in here in a little bit. I want to get into how you help people discover their functional view of God or their, you've mentioned their emotional view of God mm-hmm. before we even get there though. Let's talk about how we got here. Yeah. Uh, Cause some of the, this conversation is about the overly left brain rational <laughs> yeah. experience of God. Yeah. <laughs> so totally. why, why is the, why is the evangelical church in America, at least uh, so left brain, so rational, so, mm-hmm weighted to that side in our discipleship spiritual formation? Yeah, it's a good question. It has a really long answer, but uh, I'll hit some hot points and just trust that, uh, you know, the listener will dig a little more if they want to. But yeah, so I think that it really goes all the way back to the garden where we're like, hey, can't trust God. I got to try to do this on my own, which is not which is a, a based out of fear, Right. And uh, I think when you look at the church in America, you have the foundations of it in the 1700s with the Puritans and guys like Jonathan Edwards, who, if you read his religious affections, you're like, dude, this guy's, you know, really good theology. However, the legacy that he left, in other words, the guys that came behind him tended to be more, um, they tended to be to emphasize sanctification so much that you pretty much had to be like a, you know, a functioning saint if you were going to be considered a Christian, you know? And so you see in the first awakening, that was kind of the deal, but then it swings to the other side to the second awakening. And in the second awakening, you have almost the exact opposite mistake. You have a high experiential thing where guys like Charles Finney and people are and stump preachers and guys going around the, the West as our country was expanding westward, um, who were going out to these tent revivals and, you know, they had the anxious bench and they had the people coming down and, you know, it was a heavy experiential. And, uh, and so you, you're seeing the pendulum swing in America. And then in the 19th century around the, you know, toward the end of the, the uh, second awakening, you had kind of what people will call the four horsemen of the, the modern, you know, apocalypse and uh, and Karl Marx and Frederick Nietzsche and Charles Darwin and Sigmund Freud, and those four guys kind of combined together, really was a cultural earthquake for uh, Christians. Christianity began to in America begin to lose its position of power. Um, it was uh, lose it was losing ground in the academy. Um, it began to lose ground uh, economically. It began to lose ground politically. I mean, it was just, it found itself in a very defensive position. And so our response to that was really twofold. One was, uh, in, at the turn of the century, you had the, uh, uh, the fundamentals of faith that were produced as a response to the liberalism that was kind of creeping in. And uh, on one front, you had people who were just heavy doctrine and uh, were all about defining, you know, it was almost like the Council of Nicaea on steroids, like long, long statements on what we believe and all that. Those were the fundamentals, which started off in a good spot, but it was it was abused after a while. And then the other side of it was uh, the Azusa Street revivals in California, Los Angeles that really came out of a holiness movement that started to push across the country. And out of that is birthed, you know, Pentecostalism, modern Pentecostalism and assemblies, assemblies of God and third wave charismatics and stuff like that. And so you have, you have kind of this Christian response to modernity and within the Christian response, you have more like the fundamentalists that are heavy doctrine and then the experientialists like, 
you know, the, uh, the ones I mentioned that are heavy experience, but lack the, the doctrinal foundation. And we just, we typically come from a tradition and why, by we, I'm talking about you and I come from a tradition that is doctrinally heavy, um, and is almost, well, I would, I'll just go ahead and say it. It is at the best, uh, wary of experiential, uh, the experiential side of things. And at most we'll say that it's dangerous. Um, and so for a long time, um, we have in a response to the liberalism of the 19th century, the 20th century was marked by a, a doctrinal response to try to defend Christianity. And the irony of it is, is that, uh, the guys in the, 19th century really baited us into the wrong conversation. They forced us to have a lopsided conversation where we were responding to the game that they had set up. And uh, we were responding to intellectual challenges with an intellectual response. But in doing so, we, we abandoned the experiential side of uh, of what it means to commune with God, which mm. obviously has a really long history. And then the other side of the conservative coin, you know, kind of uh, pretty much just ignored all of that and was just mm. chasing after, you know, the experience that ended up being not grounded and literally, as you could imagine, started flailing all over the place. So mm. that's a that's little good. bit, I mean, that's a kind of a high level intro into how we got here today. Um, but we are, I mean, um, we are formed, we have been formed, American evangelical conservative Christianity has been formed in, in a very left brain way. And as you read in my, you know, dissertation, um, that, that is entirely insufficient. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. One of the one of the more helpful frames, I think you've probably read uh, Jim Wilder uh, renovated. Yeah, renovated. Yeah, um, yeah with Dallas. Some Willard. of the yeah, yeah Willard stuff, and then some of the you know neurotheologians. Uh-huh. And, um, well, some of the more helpful language for me has been the distinction between thoughts about God and thoughts with God. Yeah, that's good. Uh, and and yet, even as you're talking about the experiential, I guess there's another wave which I hadn't thought about, which is kind of like whatever thoughts you have and then baptizing them as if they were from God totally. <laughs> might be a danger yeah. of a, of a, of a low doctrine, high experience yep. uh, thing. And we're not, we're not trying to do that either, yep. but we're, we're trying to avoid either ditch, right? Just a logical um, thought about God that might be right. You know, good exegetical, good historical theology, all that in place. Uh, no, very little relationship or mm-hmm. the other relationship, but it's maybe off the tracks a bit, not, tested against scripture, not tested against uh, community and other things to, to where we might be off on our own, kind of imagining all kinds of things about what God is like. Or yeah, what of he course. Said. Now, I think one of the great things, um, because I, I mentioned those four guys, is not not everything that they were saying is, is, has, you know, is bad. It's not, it's not like we, which is part of the frustration is we, even our response to those guys was unwarranted in the way that we did it. It was kind of like the caricature Oh my gosh, bad demon, we you know, and then like just launch a full-fledged attack without attack at somebody without really understanding, hey, what are you saying? Because I mean, Freud is the father of psychoanalysis, and a lot of his work has been super helpful in thinking about um, how the mind 
I'm not talking about the brain, but how the mind develops, how various representations develop uh, internally as psychological constructs or schemas. And that's what I did my entire dissertation on is that unique mental schema or representation called God, little g God. It's the God that you construct in your own mind. And so like right now, I mean, I know you, we've been friends for 20 years. And so I have a mental scheme. I have a, I have a internal representation of Duke Rivard, but my internal representation of you is not you. Like you are an actual person. And, you know, right now I'm in Dallas and you're in Fort Worth. So like, you know, we're talking, but we're not even in the same room and we still have these, uh, but we still have these mental internal representations. We do the same thing with God and uh, our representations bump into each other. So you have these environments that you're, that you grow up in that are um, depending on the environment you're in that can be secure or insecure. Uh, they can be insecure, ambivalent, insecure, anxious, insecure, disorganized, or they can be secure, you know, and, and your, your brain is developing neurologically in a healthy way, or your brain is developing in such a way that you're, you're formed to put up coping mechanisms, mechanisms and defense mechanisms subconsciously. You're not aware of these things. And so then when somebody starts to tell you about this other object in your life, that's not, a, that's not your parent or a coach or a seminal figure, but instead is this, is this object that everybody talks about. We do liturgy around it. We do ritual around it. We do all these things around this object, but nobody can see the object. And so you're like, well, I have to like, I have to construct this in my mind then. And that becomes your God representation. And your God representation is that unique object that you represent internally. That is the vehicle that allows you to interact with the real thing. So if your God representation in your mind is distorted, is, has bled over from insecure attachments with other people, then the way you're going to relate to the real, uh, the objective reality who is God, there's only one of him, right, um, is going to be really difficult. You're, gonna, you're going to read 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, and be like, yeah, God is love, right? And then you're going to walk away from that text, and your experience of God is going to be anything but love because you've been formed to interact with him in a transactional way or in a fear-based way or in some sort of uh, um, um, deal where you're, you're doing a deal with him um, in, or some sort of obligatory thing, like if it's a very if-then kind of thing. There's a, there's a lot of different ways that that can go down, um, but uh, the dominant one that, that the longitudinal study that Baylor University has done on this is that the deity among conservative evangelicals in America is high involvement and high power, low benevolence. So you have a deity who's, who's extremely present in your life, and he's really powerful, but he's not good. And I mean, it's, it's like in the 70 or 80th percentile of that's how people image, emotionally image God. Yeah. And I'm, you know, like I've told you, I'm, I'm like on a crusade to change that. Yeah. 
No, and it's huge. Yeah, it's huge. And as you're as you're talking, Nathan, I'm thinking of the Puritans that say, you know, pray until you pray. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or almost like image, like see God until you see God. Mm-hmm. You know, but you can't start from zero to to perfect you know, representation, right? Mm -hmm. But there's a process of seeing God until you really see God um, as he is. And we know that in the first century, gosh, Jesus was in the flesh and was missed by people because he did not map onto their their God representation or their Mm -hmm. schema of what they thought God would be like, or that even that God could take on flesh. Mm -hmm. But uh, so this really, really helpful context for us understanding some of the how we got here and even maybe some of the process. Um, even when you, you go back to your cohort and the 20 people that did this, this um, experiential study uh, with uh, what were some of the things you did or how would you describe your process of helping them discover their actual uh, schema, their current representation of God? Yeah. The best way to describe it, because some people are listening to me talk and, and I, sometimes because I've lived in this world, I just assume that people, you know, automatically know what I'm talking about when, Probably a lot of you guys listen to this uh, are like, what? Schema, what? Rep or what? <laughs> so probably the best thing to describe is your God representation. Again, like I said, is an internal uh, psychological construct. Uh, you create it in your own mind. Um, and that's okay. That's not bad. You do that with everything. Um, but we have to understand it. And the two primary facets to anybody's God representation is your conscious, explicit, rational, left brain, linear, linguistic, logical part that that's what allows you to get an A on a theology exam. You know, that's the, it's the thing you can consciously play with. Um, The other part of your God representation, so that's called your God concept. The other part of it is called your God image. And your God image is implicit, it's, sub, it's subconscious, um, it's experiential, it's emotional, it's holistic. It's, it's uh, instead like uh, uh, your, God, your concept is linear, whereas your image is, runs on parallels with a whole bunch of other things. And so that's what I mean by holistic. And the crazy thing is, is uh, your image, when your image conflicts with your concept, your image wins every single time. Like we're literally biologically wired uh, to be, we are emotional creatures. Before we're ever thinking creatures, we're always emotional creatures. The way that, that's the way data flows through our body, through our brains, through our nervous system, through our brain stem, through uh, your limbic system, which is either, which either uh, puts you into a fight, flight, freeze posture or if you're relaxed and that information is able to go through your right brain, which is primarily uh, emotional and experiential, and then it finally can make it to your left brain and then ultimately to your prefrontal cortex. So before you ever even have a conscious thought about God, there is a ton of information that's already being processed that you don't even know about yet, you know? And so in, if you try to get at somebody's God image that that subconscious, emotional, experiential, holistic part of their God representation. If you try to get at that through the left brain, you will never get there. <laughs> the left brain acts as uh, what, what C.S. Lewis calls watchful dragons. You know, it, it acts as a defense mechanism to protect from what people implicitly know is there, even though they don't consciously know it's there. 
And so if somebody asks you a God, if you're trying to get a God image and you ask a God concept question, then you're never going to get to the image. And so you have to surprise people. So like people are never more uh, real and authentic as when they're surprised. So, I mean, you think about it, you know, it's that uh, whether you're uh, like one of the, one of the guys that I interviewed for my um, dissertation, who's written a book on this stuff, talked about a friend of his who was a, uh, an atheist and he was in an airplane and he's, you know, kicking back, whatever on his computer. And all of a sudden they hit like some pretty severe turbulence. Right. And all of a sudden this, this guy goes from like a relaxed position to like, super elevated adrenaline like he is he and what's fascinating is uh the guy told my buddy he was like man what surprised me is i don't even believe that there is a god but when we hit that turbulence my mind immediately went back to a prayer that my mom used to pray for me when i was a child you know and so that now the experience of that allowed him to access that that subconscious thing that had that it's been living there the whole time, but now he's able to access it through some sort of experience that exposed it, right? And uh, and so that's what my assessment is designed to do. It's designed to get people into an emotionally vulnerable spot, and then it comes at their God image from either the side or from behind to where they don't see it coming. And, uh, and then that's when they're able to be like, oh, and of course can record their responses in real time. And then I meet with them after those series of exercises are over. I meet with them one-on-one and we go through an entire, it typically takes two to three hours to go through all of their results and I help them unpack it um, to where now stuff that used to be suppressed, but was primary and was driving a lot of their motivations. Now, all of a sudden that stuff has been raised to the level of awareness. And now with someone with a trusted guidance guy, you know, guide or counselor, they're able to sit there and look at this, these things and go, Oh, I never assigned this to that or this to that. And you're able to connect things for people to where then, and that, and that, what that, what, uh, you know, psych doctors and, and neurobiologists and, and psych, you know, psychoanalysis call that is integration. People become integrate their, their, their life narrative becomes integrated. And now instead of, uh, kind of a scale of one to 10 of how intensely you feel something, instead of somebody feeling like a 10, every time something is brought up that makes them remember something that happened 30 years ago. Now, instead of being a 10, they're able to back away from it, provide some differentiation, right? They're able to differentiate from it, look at it, examine it, allow it to, to be the thing that it is. And then, and then they remember it a little bit differently. Like they gain empathy and compassion, not only for themselves, but for the other people that were part of that story. They gain more information. They see how this connected to that. And now they're able to look at it holistically and go, oh, oh. Yeah. Okay. I'm remembering my story differently. And when you do that, then your brain literally neurologically relaxes. Your hippocampus runs into high gear. It begins to integrate these things. And now that stuff that was stuck in a pipe, you know, that was all had all kinds of debris in it is now able to move through the rest of your brain and you're able to tell your story in a different way. 
and uh, and that allows you what what ends up happening then is uh, through an earned secure attachment, you are able um, through your uh, through your transformed God representation to move more and more deeply into the actual uh, objective reality who is God. And what you see when you when you move deeper and deeper into God is that God is love. Mm-hmm. And, and, love. and it's not just that you know that in the logical left brain, but it that becomes you experience, your experience. Yeah, your it emotional experience, your experience of God. That's right. Yeah, and you don't really grow. You don't really grow until that happens. Mm-hmm. You, you might yeah. you might have multiple PhDs in biblical theology, historical theology, you know, systematic theology, you know, all kinds of stuff. You can know everything, you know, but if you're not, if it's not your experience, if every time you think about God, your limbic system is firing and suppressing woundedness from stuff that happened a long time ago, then um, the, you you're going to keep hitting that ceiling of your God image, and that's what ends up happening is people's emotional God image acts as a ceiling. For them, they'll they'll do all the disciplines and know all the things and have all the right answers, but they keep knocking their head against this thing because they don't understand it, and yeah. uh, and nobody's there to to walk them through it. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's so true. Like, and on the spectrum of um, as you mentioned, the word integration on the opposite spectrum is disintegration. Yeah, that's right. You know, and a, or a, a real fragmented experience of life and. I'm thinking of uh, the body keeps the score and even the studies around PTSD and some of the Mm -hmm. folks who've experienced the most trauma live in the most disintegrated sort of mental state. Um, They have oversized responses to things because their limbic brain is overriding and making those connections. So yeah, so this is a movement towards integration who God, what's your doctrinal statement or your creedal statement says about God and your emotional <laughs> yes. experience of God become integrated into one thing. Yep. Um, yeah, and, and that's that's huge. So they increasingly match each other. And what's cool is is that uh, they also will play off of each other. And you'll begin to realize the more you experience the love of God, the more you're going to see your doctrine shift in some ways that you would never have seen if you had not had a deep and abiding experience with God. Um, and then you begin to see like, oh, my doctrinal statements, which I thought were were 100% true, were also being shaded and colored by my God image. I just didn't know it, right? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean, yeah. that doesn't mean your, your theology is totally off. It just means that the more, I mean, it's, it's Colossians 1, right? You, you, we're, grow, we're moving and growing in the knowledge of God. But that growing mm-hmm. in the knowledge of God requires that we, we experience him as he mm-hmm. is and not yeah. as we would make him. So it's a very... Yeah discipleship becomes iconoclastic right we're we're uh, the holy spirit is is destroying our Im- our false images of him mm-hmm. uh, the parts of us that believe that god's not trustworthy that he's not good that he doesn't love us that he doesn't delight in us that he's overly judgmental that he delights in sending people to hell you know like this kind of thing and that's just not who god is and so yeah. instead the Holy Spirit is going, hey, when you're ready in various seasons of your soul, mm-hmm. I'm going to blow up your entire God representation. And it's going to be yeah. super disorienting because you are uh, convinced that your belief about God is true. And yeah. parts of it are true, but there's a lot of it that's not. And so I got to blow that up. But then I'm going to reform it around a God representation that's more accurate. And then when that settles in and everything's good, I'm going to blow that one up. <laughs> yeah. And it's this constant, 
process of uh, what Walter Brueggemann calls uh, orientation, disorientation, reorientation. And mm-hmm. we're constantly living in that cycle in our discipleship to Jesus, who is, who is peeling layers of our woundedness back so that we can commune with him in, in purely, I mean, as pure as possible on this side of the kingdom the fully realized kingdom, um, as purely as possible, commune with the actual God who is love, who does delight mm. in us, who yeah. who rejoices over us with singing, you know? Yeah. And it's just very difficult for wounded people to actually experience that because of all of the, the disorientation that's happened in their lives. Yeah, that's so huge. I'm, I think, Nathan, the verse right now that's probably challenging me the most as it relates to discipleship is connected to this. But first Timothy one five says the goal of our instruction is love. love, Yeah. And this idea that you've not really grown up in the way of Jesus until you're mature in love. Yep. That's right. And so you really don't know God yet. You know about God, Mm -hmm. you know, but if you're, if you're very immature in love and I'm not to pick on or pile on too much, but if you're Ravi Zacharias, right, you know, Mm -hmm. doctrine, you have a white hot mind, great exegetical skill, phenomenal philosopher, phenomenal apologist, but you do not, you're not yet mature in love, then you're not actually a mature disciple and you shouldn't be teaching anyone else in the church because you're not mature yet. And in fact, yeah, you might not even be a a Christian. So it's this idea of like, you can know a lot about God and not know God. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and it's the tone and tenor of, of ministry because it's not only someone's God image, it is, but it begins to leak out in their ministry mm-hmm. when you are around somebody who's giving you sound doctrine and they're showing you chapter and verse and you're you're following along with their exegetical process and you're saying hey, it's checking out. And yet when I'm around them, it doesn't feel like good news. Yeah, you know right, what I mean? It doesn't right. feel yep. like, I feel more desolation in my spirit, even yep. as they talk about beautiful and, mm. and sweeping doctrines of God mm. that should be evoking worship. I just yeah. still, <laughs> there's a disconnect, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and what you're saying and what I experience when I'm with you are, are two different things. Mm. Um, and so it's almost like we need another plane for eval- evaluating uh, disciples and leaders. Oh, for uh, sure. Our metrics is- are totally jacked up, bro. I mean, we're, we we measure maturity in in almost all the wrong ways, and uh, and and unfortunately, in a performance culture, you have the most charismatic guy who has the most upfront visionary type gifts, ends up getting the most playtime in in uh, our in equipping and and uh, shepherding the body, and that doesn't mean that those guys can't be mature in love. A lot of them are, you know, uh, but there's also a substantial portion of them who. Uh, are are saying the right things and leading from a position of strength and power um, that is is almost completely void of love, and mm. and it's a and it it's killing the church, man. I mean, you know, we we look too much like like Hollywood and a celebrity type deal than we do, you know, uh, followers of Jesus. Yeah, no, absolutely. So let's imagine someone yeah, in the audience is really thinking, man, I, I'm pretty sure I have some wrong views of God. I'm sure my representation isn't exactly what it should be. Uh, what What's some things that, that happen maybe in that immediate uh, place where you, you do an unveiling uh, and then maybe ongoing, what are some practices that help yeah. people to reorient with a more accurate 
view or, or an emotional experience of God that's consistent with the reality of God? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's the right question. Um, I'll tell you for, you know, the, the I've taken about 50 people through this now, and uh, pretty much everybody's disoriented when they leave my office um, or leave whatever room we're meeting in. Because it's because they're beginning to see things they've never seen before, and so your brain is just processing it. And 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 that by far the number one question everybody asks is, okay, well, what do I do? <laughs> How do I fix myself? You know, and and uh, I just encourage them to know to tell them like, hey, you there when you're talking about it from an actual like substantively, what can you do to fix yourself? The answer is nothing, like. That's the whole point of the gospel, you know, <laughs> is you can't fix yourself. Um, and yet we're moving into a space here where I think that you're going to be more uh, more open to and desiring to learn in deeper ways how much you're actually loved by God. And so I have a list of books that I think help people with this. One of them that, I've, that I'm actually going to start giving away to people who go through the assessment is a fairly new one called Gentle and Lowly mm-hmm. um, that uh, just talks about the character of Jesus and how that yeah. represents what God is like, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another one that I encourage a lot of people to read is uh, Brother Lawrence, The Practice of the Presence of God. I think he mm-hmm. does a great job of, of just showing people like, you know, oh, you can actually live in the love of God. This is possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, John of the Cross, The Living Flame of Love, um, you know, Andrew Murray's book, Abide in Christ, is really good in this regard. Um, so there's some there's some good stuff out there. Uh, anything by Henry Nouwen. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um, you know, the uh, you know, Thomas Merton, uh, New Seeds of Contemplation is really good. Um, and, and what's funny is a lot of times evangelicals will hear some of these names and be like, whoa, Catholic mystic. Whoa, this, mm-hmm. whoa, I can't read these guys. And that's where I'm just like, dude. Put your put the whole 20th century response to modernity thing, you know, just just shoot it in the head and put it to death. And mm-hmm. and and just know like we can learn from all these guys who've gone before us and gals. Absolutely. And, man, uh, I and yeah. we gotta admit we're not good at everything, man. Your oh, tradition dude, you suck. Your tradi- <laughs> well, yeah. Who who was it that wrote uh, Streams of Living Water? Maybe yeah, Richard Foster. Foster. Yeah. Richard Foster, but he basically showed that each tradition has a contribution to the broader Christian. Oh, for church, sure. You yeah, know, yeah, yep. and like I've learned more about prayer from Henry now and then almost anybody. Yep. And I just, I don't think evangelicals are great. They shouldn't be teaching the world about prayer because we're just not that good at it. Yep. And, and like we could humble ourselves and acknowledge that a Catholic mystic might be stronger in prayer than we are. Yeah. And rather than writing almost them off. Almost certainly is. Yeah. Yeah. Then rather than because your doctrinal statement doesn't perfectly align that you exactly. can't learn anything from them. It's like, right. man, that's the world gets pretty small when you, when you get down to that. Well, that it becomes approach. self-referential. Like we become the arbiters of what's true or not. And, it, and it's just like, dude, as soon, if you're doing that, like, hey, I love you. God loves you, more importantly. Um, <laughs> but what he's going to do to, to uh, in loving you, to reorient you to reality might get a little dirty, you know, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, living out of a self-referential spot where, where we are the idolaters that are shaping God and experience of God and Christianity and how Christianity relates to the world, when we are the ones who are shaping that in our own image, then 
um, it, things do not go well. Um, yeah, there's some yeah some intellectual and emotional inbreeding at that yeah. point. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Well, so 50 people have walked through your particular experience. Mm-hmm. Maybe talk about some of the fruit that you've seen in disciples' oh, lives I as they've it, come man. to have a a more accurate <clears throat> emotional experience of the truth of the goodness of God. Yeah, yeah. A couple stories. Uh, um, one is uh, a guy who I talk about in the dissertation who was really stuck in a kind of performance culture, which is, I mean, dude, that's watermark, you know, watermark We're, you know, we, we will, uh, it's, it, we're an activator church. And so it was a heavy emphasis on activism and evangelism and getting like getting after it. Like that's a, you know, come on, let's go is kind of our rallying cry <laughs> around here, which in, in, in some people's journey of discipleship, that's where they are and that's what they need. But other people who, after they've been there for a while, are like, "Okay, I'm tired of tired of hearing the same pep talk every you know every week." And this guy came through the assessment. And we worked through a lot of stuff where he was stuck, and he told me, um, in a, a follow up conversation, he was like, "Dude, um, it, like Christianity is uh, is way more exciting than I thought it was, and God is way more beautiful than I thought he was." you know? And so it's that kind of stuff where you're like, yes, that's the whole point. You know, I mean, watching, uh, watching people who have severe trauma, which this is another point I would make real quick is that, uh, out of the 20 people who went through my focus group that I actually did for my, uh, for my paper, um, 12 of them had experienced some sort of, uh, abuse in their lives. And out of the 28 of those people had experienced abuse, like in a criminal, criminal manner, like somebody needed to go to jail, um, physical, sexual, um, yeah, just horrible stuff. And, um, and so I think as a pastor, when I go meet with people now, I just assume when I walk into the room that half of the people in the room have that kind of story. And I, based on a lot of data that I, that I, you know, went and got, um, that's a pretty safe assumption. So, uh, it's a lot of just helping people work through their woundedness. And as they do that, then they begin to, those, there's these eureka moments where they're like, Oh, I mean, there's a, uh, um, some two, two girls, I mean, we had more than this, but two of the girls were from, uh, our international one Asian and one middle Eastern and helping them work through some of the trauma that they experienced growing up, um, has allowed them to, uh, more quickly and more freely, uh, grow in their relationship to now where they are, they're leading other women, um, down a similar pathway, and it's very natural for them. It doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel like an obligation. It's just a very natural, like, dude, I, like I am realizing in deeper ways how much God loves me, and how how can I not share that with you? You know, and uh, so watching this has been that. That's what I was talking about. The results, like, uh, it's just been super encouraging, and uh, and and it's just a beautiful thing to be a part of, right? For people to go, hey. Um, God loves me. And, you know, second Corinthians five of, and I'm compelled by that love. Um, so 
Yeah, yeah man, it's that's fun. Beautiful. That is such good work, man. I'm so encouraged to to hear some of the fruit. Well, as we wrap up, man, what's one question I should be asking about it that I haven't? What's what did I miss? What what, what else do you think people need to know and understand about their image of God or how to grow into a more experiential, emotional? Yeah, I think I would just reiterate or emphasize the fact that wherever you are in your life right now, it's okay that you're there. Like, I think one of the things I run into a lot is people who are trying to be further along than they are. And um, I would just discourage you from doing that. Like, God knows where you are. He is orchestrating this whole process. Um, he is inviting you into deeper intimacy with him. He will bring opportunities along for you to participate as he is transforming you into the image of his son and that by his spirit who who is who is love, right? And uh, and so I would just say, like be patient with yourself and and to just know that the the harshness of God is kinder than the gentleness of men. like and like he is not angry at you. He's not uh, frustrated with you. He, he is wooing and drawing and, and patient. And, uh, and he's, uh, he's a good father. So a couple of the passages that I uh, mention a lot to people is first uh, John chapter three, verses one and two, you know, like, uh, literally the potapos there, the beginning of first John three or uh, yeah, first John three, one where he says, uh, behold, what manner of love or see how great the love of the, the father is for us, which literally in, in its original, um, uh, Greek, it literally is translated. What con- what country is the love of God from like that? We should be called children of God. Like, and, and we don't know how to translate that. So we just call it, we just say, see, it's really great. You know, like, yeah. otherworldly. Um, like it's otherworldly. That's right. What country is the love of God from that we should be ch- called children of God? And that is what we are. Um, mm. And just to live into that, um, to know like first John chapter two, when, when we see him, we will be like him because there's the conditional part of it, because we will see him as he is. There is a direct correlation between encountering and seeing the real objective reality who is God and our transformation into his likeness. And so this is critical to uh, discipleship and spiritual formation. Um, And at the end of the day, like you and I've talked about a bunch in just the Ephesians 3 passage of, you know, um, I pray that you being rooted and established in love would have power together with all of God's people to know um, how high and long and wide and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's deeper than your left brain, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and that, that through living into the love of God, we are, we are transformed. Yeah. So I love really it. Cool. And kind of piggyback on what you said earlier about wherever you are, it's okay. Yeah. I think we often have to tell disciples, hey, you do know the love of God. Okay. Mm-hmm. We're not saying we're not taking that away from you because you've discovered some distorted images of God or you've mm-hmm. discovered some you know, something that's broken. Uh, you probably are. Maybe you're splashing up to your waist in the love of God, right? Yep. But there's just so much more. It's so yep. much deeper still. Yep. So yep. we have good news. It goes deeper than you can plumb. Oh, bro. It goes, you know, deeper than you'll ever be able to get to the bottom of. 
love. And so yes. just keep going deeper, uh, mm, but not invalidating good. your journey thus far. We're not no. saying you've been missing it this whole time. Cause some, some, some folks will get hard on themselves and imagine, well, everything until now was a lie, right? Yeah, Somebody, yeah, yeah. maybe, maybe these 20 people who experienced things like, no, no, no there was probably some authentic encounter with God. Mm. There was probably wheat growing with the tares. There was stuff there that was growing up that wasn't helpful and wasn't yep. accurate alongside some stuff that really was. That's right. That, yep. And, and that's a part of what it looks like to continue to grow up in the maturity. And, and it's not all instantaneous. And yet I love Nathan that you highlighted the sovereignty of God. Like mm. God has you, mm. uh, that he holds you, he holds you together. And he who began a good work, will see it to that's completion. Right. Like yep. it's not going to not happen. Right. In fact, your glorification when it's you inevitable. see him face to face is inevitable. Yep. Exactly. Yep. So yeah, there's there's Thessalon- no- the end of Thessalonians, right? The, the one who called you to this will accomplish it, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so hopeful. Well, brother, I know this is a longer conversation. I'm excited to see the book. I'm excited to see the ways that God continues to mm. bear fruit as you help people connect to God. I just want to remind, remind the saturated audience that <laughs> this thing we do is about Jesus. It's about relationship. It's mm-hmm. about communing. Uh, any of the activism, any of the disciple making we do in missional communities or in all of life always starts here. And it never yeah. really moves away from this very uh, centered place of mm. being with God, knowing his love, doing what we do out of the overflow and wellspring of his love. And so yeah. uh, I hope you're encouraged and blessed. Like yeah, it's been. almost like uh, apart from him, we can do nothing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Nathan, thanks for making time, brother. Always, yeah, always enjoy being together. Always uh, learn a ton from you and just really appreciate all the work you've done to serve the church in this area, to highlight it. Um, I'm going to close with, with something that, um, you know, is a G.I. Joe mantra, but we were kids. I think we were probably both G.I. Joe kids. <laughs> yeah, but, for sure. Yeah. Uh, knowing is half the battle. So yeah, even yeah, the yeah. fact that this comes up to the level of consciousness might be a big step for somebody it's, to it's realize that, one, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that there's more here and that you can keep plumbing it. Um, yeah, and, and yeah, we're just hopeful that that'll continue to happen and, and you'll experience it. What, what this guy in your cohort experienced. The kingdom's bigger and Jesus is more beautiful yeah, yeah. like that I ever, ever thought. That's mm-hmm. what we'll pray for each person listening today. And so, Nathan, thanks, brother. Thanks for the time. And hey, uh, saturate love audience. You, bro. Grateful. Yeah, love you, man. Cool. And uh, saturate, guys, thanks for tuning in. As always, um, we're, we're hopeful that this serves you along with all the resources we create towards discovering Jesus is better, his church is more, his mission is every day, and the kingdom I'll close today with just, it's inevitable. Uh, Jesus <laughs> is, is, is going to get you glorified all the way, and he's going to get uh, his kingdom on earth fully with heaven on earth and, and a perfect experience of his his, uh, his presence and his image. And our image will have no distortions, Nathan. So mm. that's, that's the good news. We're excited yeah. about it. I love it. Today's podcast was edited and produced by Justin Hugis. Saturate is committed to gospel saturation in North America and beyond until every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus in word and deed. This podcast is an ongoing conversation with disciples and leaders discussing how Jesus is better, his church is more, and his mission is every day. Learn more and activate your Saturate membership at saturatetheworld.com.